Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast. My name is Pat Iyer, and I have with me today Rebecca Pichel, who is a family nurse practitioner who's been in the field for the past 23 years. She has experience working for the Peace Corps and served in Cameroon, West Africa. She has worked as a Peace Corps fellow and got her bachelor's and master's at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland. Rebecca has begun legal nurse consulting work in the past, and we'll talk about how she got involved in that. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you, Pat. I'm very happy to be here. Let's start with that first question. You're working as a family nurse practitioner, and all of a sudden you have an opportunity to explore this new field. Tell us how you got that first case. Well, I had been working as a family nurse practitioner, I think by that point for about 13 years. And like many other nurses, kind of was feeling the sense of burnout, being overworked, underpaid, and thought, you know what, I'm going to just invest in myself, kind of an entrepreneurial spirit. And I took a course, I established a website. And before I knew it, I had a call from an attorney here in Florida to review a case, and it's just gone on from there. Do you have a sense of how he found out about you? I I think they just Googled. Um, yeah, they, they found the website that I have up that it's not interactive. It's just basically you know, saying, here I am, I have a legal nurse consulting business. And it was a case with a family nurse practitioner. And from my understanding, that's just how attorneys kind of find experts is networking, word of mouth. And since then, that attorney has brought me other cases as well. Your answer is a good reminder as to why when people ask, should you have a website? My response always is yes, you need to be found. And mm -hmm. you got found through your website. Absolutely. And it also answers a question that sometimes comes up that expert witnesses are reluctant to have a website, some expert witnesses for fear that that paints them as wanting to do this work which used to be, in my opinion, a somewhat valid concern until mm -hmm. the rest of the world got websites. And mm -hmm. then the way of being found and showing that you're available to help is through being visible. And a website's one way to do it. Absolutely. I think it just legitimizes that you're a real person and here your credentials to be seen. But maybe one way to get around that, I agree with you, you know, you don't want to come across as being hired as a hired gun, so to speak. 
But if you have a website where it's not necessarily generating clients, um, I think that's very valid. I think we should have it. It's just another we're professional when we have that presence out there. Well, take us back to the time when you got that first case. What was that experience like for you? And how did you find it rewarding to move into this field? First of all, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that it was actually happening, that the system of let's get certified, let's try to move into this, let's be professional and have a website and then you know, it worked. So that was, that was um, very good. That certainly piqued my confidence. And I think I just, it's a great component to do legal nurse consulting while also practicing as a nurse practitioner. I think why it's so rewarding is that it helps me to be a better clinician when I can read through medical records and I see um, mistakes that may have happened or flaws in the medical system that contribute to those kinds of mistakes. And I feel like it helps me to know how to better document. What's most rewarding is being able to take what I've learned and try to funnel that into helping other nurse practitioners. And I've done that in some of my positions in terms of auditing charts or helping them with documentation. So, you know, I'm trying to pass along what I'm learning to make all of us better clinicians. And you've touched on something that I don't think that many legal nurse consultants um, appreciate, that this is not an isolated activity where you're reviewing a case, forming an opinion, writing a report, testifying that act can spread into education to teaching others, hey, I was involved in a case and this is what happened. And this is what we need to do so we don't end up in a similar case. Um, as well as changes within the facilities or medical or nurse practitioner practices that happen as a result of people being involved in cases. That's, I think, Absolutely. one of our ultimate payoffs is we can, through our involvement, help to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Absolutely, because a lot of, I think a lot of providers don't realize that it's the entire group, it's the entire practice in terms of, and we can maybe talk about it a little bit more in depth, but it's not just what I'm doing as the provider and, and how I'm diagnosing the patient, how I'm treating the patient, but it's everything behind the scenes of, the person who's making the appointment and how that's communicated and how that person's triaged and how do, you know, abnormal lab results or abnormal test results get communicated to me and communicated to the patient. So it's everybody. It's not just the nurse practitioners and the physicians. It's the MAs. It's the support staff. It's the receptionist. We're all in it together. Mm-hmm. We have listeners all over the world. I just did Italian, and we've got listeners in 105 countries. Not all of them will have the nurse practitioner role that you're describing. So I thought it would be helpful for you to, to tell us about the levels of supervision and activities that nurse practitioners can provide in this country. And 
and also that that may vary from state to state. Yes, and I think for listeners in other countries, certainly it, it varies tremendously from state to state, and you'd have to really look that up. Um, I can speak certainly to the state of Florida where I practice. And in Florida, for a long time, we could not be independent. Um, more recently, I think it was 2018, you can apply to the Board of Nursing to be an independent nurse practitioner only if you practice in the area of primary care, which also interestingly does include psychiatric and mental health nurse practitioners. You have to apply to the board. This is a new thing. You have to submit um, their required recent continuing education hours, et cetera. But there are now nurses in Florida who are practicing completely independently. They don't have to have any association, supervision, collaboration with physicians. I think many of us in Florida haven't really made that leap yet. And certainly it only applies if you're working in primary care. Um, for me, although I am working in primary care, I do work in a physician practice. It's one physician and there are six nurse practitioners. And in Florida, it's as in many states, because I do review cases all over the United States. And you hear the term supervision, collaboration. It used to be in Florida, we had to have a protocol on file with the Board of Nursing. That's no longer required, although you do have to still have a protocol on site at your practice site. And that protocol is basically a signed agreement between you and the physician that's detailing what you can do um, and what you can't do. So it's going to vary from site to site. And I guess the take home message is you have to know how you and the physician you're working with, whoever your supervising physician is what do they want? You have to discuss that together. When do they want you to consult with them? Um, when do they want to potentially look over your charts? There's no legal requirement to have your charts co-signed by a physician in Florida. So it just, it, it, it varies tremendously. That's helpful. And as you were talking, I was thinking about the one physician and the six nurse practitioners. And I was thinking you would say the six physicians and the one nurse practitioner, which is a model that I've also seen. Mm -hmm. It makes me wonder as I listen to you about the, the potential for the misdiagnosis. Where does the knowledge of the nurse practitioner overlap with the physician's knowledge and where is that situation when a patient comes into the office, say in primary care, and has symptoms that you can't quite determine what's causing them? At what point does the standard of care require the nurse practitioner to then say to a physician, whether that's a supervising physician or a consulting physician, I'm stumped. Can you get involved? Well, I think certainly the standard of care requires if if you can't make a diagnosis or you need help talking through it with someone, the standard of care requires that you do that. And perhaps we'll get into it a little bit more about what are the common areas of 
you know, negligence against nurse practitioners, well, that's a big one. And I think that question applies to all of us, whether we're phys- nurse practitioners or physicians. I mean, physicians can get stumped. We all get stumped. But that's the point of you reach out and you talk with your other providers. You consult together. You talk through the symptoms. You put your minds together and figure out what test are you going to order? What's your differential diagnosis? You you go at it um, from a team approach. But I think for any nurse practitioner, whether you are brand new and you've been practicing for a year or you are me, you've been practicing for 23 years, you have to really know well what you don't know. <laughs> I tell I, I tell nurse practitioners, students of all kinds, know what you don't know and don't pretend that you know it all. That is perfectly okay. We have a million resources at our fingertips, on our phones, all day long, that can can really help us. So the standard of care certainly requires that you find the information if you need it. And you also raise a point that, that we are seeing in medicine is that we may increasingly be relating to AI resources and conferring with AI resources to help with diagnosis and treatment. So that's another whole new world. That's another world. And you could have an entire podcast on that and how it relates to um, medical malpractice because all the time, depositions, um, trial, you 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 bring up the concept of standard of care and up, up to date, that's what everybody uses. Um, it's a wonderful resource. Let's talk about the major areas of liability. You mentioned some common medical malpractice areas that can affect nurse practitioners. Can you tell us what those are? Certainly. Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. What should you check during your first editing? You've finished your first draft of your report. You followed the advice to not edit as you wrote, but now you fear that your manuscript is a hopeless mess. Relax. Painless editing and proofreading for LNCs is here to help. I'm Pat Iyer, an experienced LNC who's been writing reports for attorneys since 1987. Does what you've written serve your reader? You can't ask a more important question. How will you answer it? That will define what does and does not belong in your writing, whether it's a report, a blog post, a newsletter article, a promotional email, or anything you share with your audience. Put yourself in the position of a plaintiff attorney who's contemplating taking a medical malpractice case. Imagine their concern. Know what can help their ability to decide on accepting a case. Provide the details, strengths, and weaknesses of the case. Offer your recommendations. Demonstrate empathy. You can ask several specific questions that give focus to this primary question. Does the text unfold in a logical sequence? When I'm writing a report, I state the major points I plan to address and then I return to the first point to elaborate. 
You might write the defendant nurse deviated from the standard of care in three significant ways. Next, you would list the ways. Many writers, especially in their first drafts, lose their thread. They get involved in the first thing they want to focus on and forget about the others. They can also confuse the reader by describing the three points but running them together so they don't create a clear distinction between them. When you edit, check this. If you've missed a point, add it. If you've blurred the points, give each a paragraph or more if needed so the reader can follow the sequence. Have you stayed on track? Review the format of your material and make sure it's logical and flows in a consistent way. Want more tips? You'll find many more valuable suggestions in painless editing and proofreading for LNCs. Get it at lnc.tips forward slash creating series. Now let's return to the show. And it, it's all going to fall under this big umbrella failure to diagnose, delay in diagnosis, misdiagnosis. Those, that's the overriding umbrella. And specifically the areas underneath that that I have seen most commonly. Again, I'm only one family nurse practitioner doing legal nurse consulting, but I've had overlap of cases from different law firms, different plaintiffs, different defendants, and they seem to fall into the categories. There's four. Sepsis is a huge one, linking mm -hmm. back to missing the diagnosis or you failed to diagnose them. Um, so sepsis, big one. I say all things cardiac heart attacks, um, ruptured aneurysms, endocarditis are the three main ones that I've seen. Anything related to cancer, of course, missing the diagnosis of cancer is a huge one. And then the fourth one that I found more and more is relating to diabetes, specifically undiagnosed diabetic ketoacidosis or severe hypoglycemia. Those are the main areas relating to delaying that diagnosis or missing that diagnosis. And within that or underneath that umbrella, specifically um, how it relates to the nurse practitioner working you know, with a physician would be failure to consult with that supervising physician, just as we were talking about. Maybe you weren't sure, maybe you weren't able to put it together. Well, why didn't you talk to your supervising physician or failure to record or, you know, uh, really important information in the medical chart, having related to the history or the exam, failing to report or discuss abnormal test results with the uh, physician, or not assessing the patient in a timely manner, particularly in terms of blood pressure or the blood sugar, as we talked about. Those are the main areas that I just see over and over and over again. Can you give us some insight about some of the communication issues 
that may exist in a practice that would be the underpinnings for some of those failures to communicate? Can you repeat the question again? You had kind of. Sure. I didn't get the first part of it. Sorry. Can you give us some insight about some of the factors that would underlie those failure to communicate issues? So factors that would underlie failure to communicate. And that's interesting because when you look at risk management or practicing good risk management, communication is, is one of the things within that. And that's certainly a broad term. Communication with the supervising physician, I think, is paramount. And I would implore all nurse practitioners, when you're working in a new practice, you really have to take the time before you're in there independently seeing patients to have conversations with your supervising physician to really put on paper, if you can, when are they expecting um, you to consult with them? You know, I've seen physicians may want, look, every EKG you do, I want to look over it with you. I want to co-sign it with you. Or anytime there's a patient with chest pain, let's discuss that. Anytime you're sending a patient to the emergency room, we need to consult on that. So the point is, you have to have those conversations between the two of you so everybody understands what the expectation is. And it's certainly um, very wise and very smart to consider putting some protocols in place within a practice as it pertains to those kind of highly litigious type diagnoses or areas, things like we talked about chest pain or abdominal pain is a, is a big one. Um, or any kind of cancer-related lab results. You have to think about those things and communicate. And then looking beyond just between the relationship or communication between the nurse practitioner and the physician, we're also working with support staff. These folks are our right hands, the MAs, the RNs, the LPNs. You have to have understanding between the two of you of what's gonna be communicated to the patient, how is it gonna be communicated, how is that gonna be recorded in the, in the patient's medical record. You can't always assume that when you ask somebody to do something that it's necessarily going to be done. And when you're looking at litigation, that's imperative. You have to have some sort of system in place that confirms they did what you asked them to do. And so we all have to obviously look through um, lab results and different things. And so when I sign off on that in an electronic medical record and I put a message to them, I will include in that, this is what I want you to do X, Y, Z. And I want you to you know, send it back to me once it's done. So I have that confirmatory, it's been done. Otherwise it kind of goes out into the universe and people have gotten sued on that where they think it's done and things fall through the cracks. So communication is imperative. And then the third element of communication, I think, is communicating, obviously, with the patient. And I would say, as much as humanly possible, try to call your patients back yourself if you can. If you can talk to the patient yourself, I think that always improves the relationship we have with them. You've mentioned electronic medical records and you've mentioned protocols. 
And, you know, as we function in this medical legal environment, we're always looking for, can we get the protocols in discovery? Can we get the electronic medical record? Can we get the full electronic medical record and not just parts of it? So first of all, in getting case materials to review, do you typically find that there are written protocols that cover the kinds of common practice issues that you've described or the high-risk diagnoses that you've listed? Not as much as I would like. Not as much as I would like. I think in certain settings you do. Um, certainly in inpatient settings, you will find protocols. And in um, urgent care settings, you will find protocols, but I see less and less of it in primary care or just office-based practices. I'd like to see that change um, just because I think it's better for everyone to think about it, put it on paper, and then you're establishing in your own facility your standard of care. When you have that kind of complaint or you have this scenario, you have a standard of care in place that is going to protect you as the provider. And, and it, I think it's going to protect the patients when we know that it, it's here's the algorithm of what the standard of care requires that we do about that particular complaint or that diagnosis. And how much of office practices at this point do you think are totally tied up with electronic medical records versus having paper records? I think it would be very hard to find an office practice today that um, is not using an electronic medical record. I think they, they exist. Um, maybe if they're not uh, dealing with Medicare patients, but I don't know that I've ever, let me think, I don't think that I've ever really had a case that did not involve electronic medical records. And a lot of times it's a blend of things, right? We have the EMR mm -hmm. that we use, but then there's um, a certain amount of paper, faxes, and other things that um, come across that are then put into the medical record. But I would be shocked <laughs> if somebody was completely handwriting things these days. Yes. Um, having been doing legal nurse consulting since 1987, I've seen a lot of transition from handwritten to electronic records and some areas of healthcare that have oh, I'm sure. come along faster than others. Um, and we are still experiencing in this country uh, areas where there are systems of software that don't communicate with other systems of software, even within the same hospital building, such as yes. an emergency room record that is not retrievable by somebody working on a med surge unit, just as an example. Yes. So, And, you know, you, you bring up a good point, Pat, of I think you see um, newer providers coming into practice where the EMR is the only thing they've ever known, right? Mm -hmm. And one thing you need to remember is sometimes your computer's not going to work. Your computer goes down. You need to be able to see that patient with a pen and a piece of paper. So 
you know, that I, I think with the EMR, there's a lot of over-reliance on templates and that creates a host of potential problems as well. So mm -hmm. it's an interesting point of that lack of paper charts where we're losing, it, it's a skill like the, you know, middle schoolers don't know how to write in cursive anymore because it's a skill they, they were never taught. And so moving forward now, who knows, that could be, that could be a real issue. I have strong feelings about putting kids through an educational system and not teaching them how to write. To exactly. me, that's such a basic, let me not go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> that could get us way beyond our, our time frame and our topic. <laughs> I have two more questions for you. One is, you came into this area prior to COVID, and then during the COVID, the height of the COVID pandemic, how did that affect your practice, both your clinical practice as well as your legal nurse consulting practice? So during COVID, I was working with a different practice, and it was very interesting. I was working with a house calls practice where we were the primary care providers going into patients' homes, mostly, obviously, geriatric patients who were very acutely ill in most cases. And um, it was interesting, like everybody else in COVID, it was kind of I like to say the Wild West, we were doing as best as we could. And um, being in home care anyway, we still went into patients' homes to test them for COVID if they had COVID, trying to assess whether or not um, they would need to be placed in the hospital because of the COVID. But I think like all of us, we certainly had to develop some telehealth skills that we didn't have prior of. How do you assess a patient through a computer screen? And, you know, we learned to get creative with that of using your other senses. You might not necessarily use um, getting real familiar with how to zoom in your camera on your cell phone to um, look at the patient, how to assess just how they're talking to you. Um, it was certainly extremely interesting. And in terms of my legal nurse consulting, um, there wasn't a huge slowdown in that. Other than all trials, you know, were put on hold, which they've now remained. So um, I do think, though, I wanted to share I had one case specifically related to COVID. And it's kind of a lesson for all of us even still, because certainly COVID is out there, but in the height of COVID, it was a very sad case that it was a young 20-something um, year old who, you know, had a fever, had been having nausea and vomiting, and they, they wouldn't see her in the community health center until she had tested negative for COVID twice which she did, and she showed up and still had a fever, and basically they sent her home. And And I think we all got, just because of COVID, you think every fever is COVID. Well, it's not, you know, and that 
sad individual ended up dying of endocarditis. Simple thing of if you don't take a, a medical history to know that she had had a congenital heart defect, um, it was a very sad case. But I think we learned some good skills for telehealth that are still in place to this day, particularly in the mental health arena. It's been um, hugely helpful for all the folks that couldn't find um, therapists out there now. We have all kinds of that via telehealth. So that was, I can say, that was a nice thing from COVID, from the pandemic. Yes, indeed, because there used to be such a uh, reluctance to meet with a patient for counseling through a monitor as opposed to in person. And that mm -hmm. reluctance disappeared. Yes, it did. It did. Now, Rebecca, as we wind this up, I know that our listeners are going to want to know how to reach you. And as you answer that, can you share with us the, the scope of services that you provide? For example, do you do expert work and behind the scenes consulting on a case involving a nurse practitioner, for example? The scope of your services and then how would our listener or our viewer who's watching this on our Legal Nurse Business YouTube channel find out about connecting with you? What would be the best way for them to do that? So probably the best way, my preference would be just to send me an email. Um, and my email is Rebecca. I don't know if you put this in the show notes, but Rebecca, R-E-B-E-C-C-A at Pashal, P-A-S-C-H-A-L-L, medicallegal.com. Or you could just um, search me on LinkedIn and message me there. Those, I think, would be my two preferred. I am still sort of testing the waters with the, I would say, ecosystem of social media. And some of that goes back to being an expert witness, uh, um, just being very careful to make sure that everything out there on the internet is professional so legal nurse consulting but certainly you can reach me those two ways and i'd be happy to hear from you and then do you provide expert services and consulting behind the scenes both yes yes it's basically both you know to be an expert um, witness you have to be a practicing nurse practitioner so i've, I've really never had someone not ask for me to do both, you know, and I, I get involved in cases in, in all different um, stages of the game. I mean, I may be asked to review a case that's in the pre-suit phase or it's not a lawsuit yet to simply look at all the records and determine was there negligence? Does the case have any merit? Many of my cases come to me in that stage of the game versus there may be a lawsuit already in play, there've already been depositions, and because there's a nurse practitioner involved, in addition to a physician, then they need an expert um, to look at the nurse practitioner care provided. Um, so yes, it's, it's the full gamut. Wonderful. Thank you, Rebecca, so much for sharing time with us, for helping us get a little tiny window into your world and to share with us some of the liability issues and also some of those high risk 
diagnoses that you enumerated that can lead to litigation. We talked about the documentation being electronic and the fact that protocols might be available or might not be available for the issues that we're evaluating. Be sure to come back next week for a new episode of Legal Nurse Podcast or click on down below or swipe, swipe sideways to come up with our next episode. We appreciate your comments and feedback. And I also wanted to make sure that I mentioned that we continue to provide um, a monthly Legal Nurse Consulting Education Unit called LNCEU website which is a membership program for the opportunity to get one of my newest books, which I'm writing at a very fast clip, and an educational program each month. You can go to lnceu.com and sign up for either a monthly or an annual subscription fee, and that material is available to you, new material every single month to help increase your knowledge and skills as a legal nurse consultant. This has been Pat Iyer and Rebecca Pichel talking about nurse practitioner liability issues. Take this information, tuck it away, and consider it the next time you're involved in a case with a nurse practitioner. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hi, this is Pat Iyer, and coming up next, you're going to have an opportunity to hear about a dreaded complication that affects our littlest patients. We're talking about necrotizing enterocolitis with Crystal Crawford, who is a neonatal intensive care unit nurse and a legal nurse consultant. Crystal, we covered a lot of territory in your podcast can you give our viewer just a few highlights of the topics that we talked about? Sure, Pat. Um, we covered what is the necrotizing intercolitis, which we often refer to as NEC. Uh, we cover what the symptoms are, how it's diagnosed, who is the most vulnerable to get NEC, uh, the nursing responsibilities, including um, helping transfer the neonate to a higher level of care and what those levels of care are. And then also the implications for the legal nurse consultant when they receive a case that involves necrotizing enterocolitis. You're going to want to be sure to see Crystal Crawford's podcast. Keep her in mind for cases that you are working on that involve neonates and pay attention to what we share about neck. This can be a, a very serious complication with implications for our littlest, most vulnerable, and least able to fight off infection patients. So the medical legal implications can be significant of a case of neck that is not diagnosed properly, or there's a delay in diagnosis. Coming up next, you will hear from Crystal Crawford on Legal Nurse Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. 
Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.